Good morning. I love that we get to hear some of the sounds of children this morning. Um, I hope you don't ever see those as a distraction. John, John Wimber, who said a lot of things, some wonderful, some strange, he said that uh, if you want to be where things are neat and tidy and in order, go to a cemetery. If you want to be where there's new life, go to a nursery. However, it's going to be messy there. So I always love when there's kids and you can hear their voices, even if it's crying. I want to begin actually with a poem that speaks of childhood as well. This is the poem called Childhood Retreat by Robert Duncan. It's in the perilous branches of the tree. Out of blue sky, the wind sings loudest surrounding me. And solitude, a wild solitude's revealed. Fearfully high I'd climb into the shaking uncertainties, part out of longing, part daring myself, part to see that widening of the world, part to find my own, my secret hiding sense and place, where from afar all voices and scenes come back, the barking of a dog, autumnal burnings, far calls, close calls. The boy I was calls out to the me here, the man where I am. Look, I've been where you most fear to be. A wild solitude. I love that line in this poem by Robert Duncan. He's describing in it the wonder of this little boy who's climbing up a tree, the danger that it takes to climb up a tree just to be alone, just to have some solitude. And then he speaks out at the end to his adult self. Look, I've been where you most fear to be. His adult self is terrified. So it paints this image of doing what is terrifying in order to have the solitude of wonder of a child. When was the last time that you were alone? And did you like it? Maybe you're alone at home watching this right now. Or maybe you're having the exact opposite experience. Maybe you're at home trying to wrangle your three kids as you're watching this. And so you're half watching, you're half going to get them a snack or a new toy or telling them that's enough on that game on the iPad. And one of the things that the pandemic has really highlighted are these sort of polar opposites of experiences with being alone, depending on your stage of life, right? I know single people who live alone and they're having a terribly lonely time right now. And especially during the early periods where we were quarantining. And some of them still are. Now, some of these friends that I have, they started to see this as a unique time. Right? A unique opportunity. Some of them are artists and they're creating more art than they ever have before. Some of them have learned to break, bake sourdough bread at home. Some of them have binged 
every Netflix series that even looked halfway decent. decent. Um, some learned how to pray. Some grew in spiritual disciplines. And for some, the loneliness began to morph into something rich and cherished. And yet I know many others who still just feel lonely. Like they have way too much time on their hands being alone and they don't know what to do with it. And then I know people with kids, young and old, who felt exhausted and continued to feel trapped. It could be because they now have to homeschool their kids along with working from home or they couldn't safely get childcare to take care of their toddlers or infants. They just feel suffocated at the loss of solitude in their new schedules. The pandemic highlights these two extremes, right? On the one hand, there are those who don't know what to do with all their alone time. And on the other hand, there are those who don't know how to get any alone time. Do you find yourself in one of those camps? Do you have way too much alone time you don't know what to do with? Or do you feel like you're trapped? Like you can hardly breathe without someone asking something of you. Here's the thing. Solitude, or what I'm saying is extended time alone with God, is absolutely necessary for growth in Christ-likeness. Now, you might have some objections to why you don't get to have extended time alone with God. I have two that I'll present today, and you may have more, but here's two objections. The first is that I'm just too busy. There's always something or somebody calling for my time or attention. Why spend time with God when I can spend time learning something new? or cleaning up the house, or catching up with a friend, or working out, or fill in the blank. In those little bits of sort of leisure time, do I really just want to be with God? There are things to be done. I don't have the time. Last Sunday, we saw Jesus in the synagogue teaching. He was teaching with authority. And our text this morning actually picks up on that same day. So this is the same day that we were at last week. So let's get a sense of Jesus's whole day. So he begins and he shows up in the synagogue Saturday morning and he's teaching. So maybe there was some prep work before that. Maybe not. Maybe he just was sort of riffing, improving. Either way, it wasn't a normal church service. A demon shows up in this man and starts screaming and causing a huge scene at church. Jesus handles it pretty well, casts the demon out, continues to teach. But either way, it was probably an exhausting experience. And then the text says immediately after leaving that church, he goes to these disciples' house. Before he can even have lunch, he's healing Simon's mother-in-law. Then says she serves him, so he probably gets some food. After sundown, the whole town gathers at the door, and it says Jesus heals many and delivers many from demons. That's a long day. That's a pretty full day. You'd think Jesus would sleep in, 
the next day. But verse 35 says, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. And if you get to spend some time reading the Gospel of Mark, you'll notice, not just in the first chapter, but throughout the book, Mark likes to use the word immediately, or just as, or right then. He describes these days of Jesus' ministry containing a sense of urgency, a sense of stuff is getting done, and it's getting done quickly. Yet even in Mark's gospel, Jesus wakes up to go to a solitary place to pray. And this shows that solitude is important to Jesus. It's worth finding the time. The second objection that I have is not just busyness, but it is connected to that first, but deeper. It's that if I'm honest, I believe my worth actually comes from my busyness. Right? Haven't you heard to wear busyness as a badge of honor? My fragile ego is often defined and upheld by how many successful projects I'm currently working on or how many people depend on me or how much money I'm earning. I mean, am I liked by people? Am I admired? Am I praised? Or am I disliked, hated, despised? In my lesser moments, my identity is defined by the people who like me and the projects that I'm successful at. I mean, there's obviously only 24 hours in a day. There's limited time to work with. So for every, say, hour in the week that I spend alone with God, that's an hour I can't spend on work or other relationships. What if I'm not getting enough stuff done and people start to think I'm being lazy? What if they think, doesn't Matt see that there are more important needs right now? There are marriages that need counseling. There are homeless people that need feeding. There are church projects that need to be done. We need to remodel the bathrooms. And he's wasting his time in prayer and solitude. Now, no one is actually saying this to me. So one inch and hope, hear that. You're not saying that to me. This isn't real scenarios. I'm making these up in my head. It's not actually the voice of the congregation. It's the voice of the accuser that I'm hearing. Sort of in disguise as a congregant. Maybe you have similar experiences, but in a different vocation. What will people think of me as a lawyer, as a mother, as a teacher, a son, a student, a doctor? Am I successful enough? Am I busy enough? Am I liked enough? We often have this compulsive need for ongoing and increasing affirmation to define who we are. And I believe this is why Jesus even practices solitude. 
So again, picking up in verse 35, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Uh, The Greek word in our text today for a solitary place, which sounds nice, right? A solitary place. It's eremos, which is the same word used other times in Mark for wilderness, even earlier in the chapter. It's the word for wilderness. It's a wild solitude. And the reason they don't translate it here as wilderness is because they're in Capernaum. We know that much. Jesus is in Capernaum. Capernaum is a big, well-developed city. Jesus couldn't have got to wilderness or desert in any amount of time, basically, to actually do that. So why do they use the word wilderness? Well, it's, it's symbolic. It's loaded. It's rich. It's pulling back on all these other uses of the word. So the gospel of Mark begins like this. So just a few verses earlier. Mark 1, verses 1 through 4. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, the Eremos. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the Eremos, wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then a few verses later, verses 11 through 13. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. At once, the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, the Eremos, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. So wilderness as I've said before, it harkens all the way back to Israel's story, and then it has a particular meaning for Jesus' story. In Israel's story, in the, elder, in the Israelite imagination, wilderness or the Eremos is a deeply formative place. Again, this is where slaves are freed, and they become the people of God, delivered from bondage. It's the place of revealing which again is what this season of epiphany is all about. It's a place where God is revealed, but also where the darker, more hidden parts of our hearts and lives are revealed. And in the wilderness, with the normal noise and distractions of life taken away, we see ourselves more clearly. And we also hear the voice of God more clearly. We can hear his tone of grace. We can hear his heart of compassion. We can hear his character of love. And we can hear his identity bestowing words spoken over us at our baptisms. You are my beloved child. In you, I am well pleased. In the wilderness, 
for Jesus, this is a place where he hears these words right before, and then the Spirit leads him into the wilderness for his identity to be sort of uh, fortified, to be tested, to be put in the fire so that only the gold remains. In the wilderness, the battle for our identity is won by Jesus. He resists Satan, the accuser, who tries to have him define himself by choosing power or popularity or prestige. Instead, Jesus rests his identity on the word of God. He is who God the Father says he is. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Continuing in verse 36, Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. How would you like to hear those words? I mean, could you be more needed? Everyone is looking for you. We need you. You are important. And so we see when Jesus is now in the solitary place, in the Eremos again, it's again a place of temptation about his identity. Jesus, you get a chance to be important right now. Everyone's looking for you back in Capernaum. When Simon and Andrew go searching for Jesus, it says they were looking for them. It's actually better translated that Simon and Andrew went to hunt him down. The verb is kata dioko. It suggests that they've engaged in an urgent manhunt for Jesus. They interrupt his moments of private meditation to inform him to inform him that everyone in Capernaum is looking for him. So they urge him to return. Jesus, return to this scene of so many personal triumphs. Remember where you delivered those demons? Remember when you basically healed the whole town? Remember when you healed my mom, my mother-in-law who was sick? The temptation is for Jesus to go back to Capernaum, where his success is guaranteed. But Jesus, in wild solitude, is reaffirmed and reminded of his identity. So he replies this in verse 38. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. Jesus is able to firmly say, this is who I am. This is what I'm doing Imagine being these first disciples right now. They have left behind their careers, right? They dropped their fishing nets. They've left behind their families. Zebedee sitting in the boat, old man Zebedee, to follow this strange rabbi. Well, early on, they realize we made a smart decision, right? This guy is healing people. He's got this authority delivering people from demons in the temple, He's obviously the real deal. I mean, literally everyone in our city wants to meet him. This must have touched sort of all of their ego desires. 
I mean, these fishermen who couldn't make the cut as rabbis are now disciples of the most popular rabbi. Imagine rubbing that in your childhood friends' faces, right? Like, we now are disciples of the rabbi. Or they could monetize it. They could have set up like a healing center in Capernaum. They could have said, hey, for this certain amount of donation, we guarantee you will heal your sister. We will heal you. Just make a tax-deductible donation to the Jesus Healing Center of Capernaum. They'd be famous. They'd be rich. They'd be uh, well-respected if they stayed in Capernaum. But Jesus says, let's go somewhere else. That's why I have come. Jesus is so secure in his identity that he can leave behind the success of Capernaum and risk ministering in a new place. He can risk his disciples leaving him. He does not need to be defined by any success apart from his unique calling or by any relationship apart from that of his father. Solitude is necessary for growth in Christ likeness because with this extended time alone with God, with this solitude, our identity as beloved children of God is strengthened and reaffirmed. And so we can then risk out of that identity the fears of who is able to define us, they sort of dissipate when we're told who we are by God. On top of this, the purpose of solitude is prayer. Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Now, you might think, well, this is a story about Jesus. Jesus, the first Christian, prayer, pretty important in Christianity. He probably prays a bunch in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus prays three times in the Gospel of Mark. That's it. In the beginning, the middle, and the end of his ministry. So in our text today, we have the first time that Jesus prays in the Gospel. And all three of these are are critical times. They're critical and defining moments, identity-defining moments in Jesus' ministry. So the first one today where Jesus is free then to surrender to God's will to continue traveling and preaching the gospel instead of staying and reveling in his Capernaum success. The second is in Mark 6, and it revolves around the feeding of the 5,000, perhaps one of the most famous miracles of Jesus. And this story is actually sandwiched between two texts about solitude. So in Mark 6, in verse 30, let me read a few verses here. This is right after the disciples uh, come back from going on their own journey. So Jesus sends out the apostles and he says, hey, you go do this ministry in my name. You go heal. You go deliver demons. They do. They come back. They're all excited because Jesus, you won't believe what we were able to do. 
this happened. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. Again, it's the word Eremos, wilderness. So after their first missionary journey, they're all excited. They want to tell Jesus about what they accomplished. And he sort of reframes the whole conversation and invites them into a wild solitude because you are not what you do. Early on, he wants them to know that. You are defined by who you are, not by what you do. But the next verse actually tells us how their solitude was interrupted right away. The masses sort of followed them in these other boats and beat them to the place they were going to. But now there's thousands of people in the solitary place in the wilderness, and there's nowhere to get food there. So people are going hungry, and so Jesus does this miracle. You probably know the details. And he feeds 5,000 people. Well, in verse 45, Mark 6 again, it continues. This is right after they're, they're fed. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. This is the second time Jesus prays in the Gospel of Mark. It's the second out of three. So here again, after a tremendous miracle, what many would label as a huge success, Jesus sneaks away to pray, seeking the will of the Father. When so many temptations towards worldly success are calling for his attention. I mean, why not just stop there after you've fed them and sort of revel in everybody saying things for you? But Jesus continues on his journey. And then the final example we have of Jesus's prayer is in Mark 14. I'll read verses 32 to 35. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. So then he says, stay here and keep watch. Going a little further so that he could be alone with the Father in solitude, he fell to the ground and he prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus affirms his intention to fulfill the will of God, which means his submission to the judgment of God on behalf of us. In prayer, 
we learn the joy and necessity of a surrendered life. The three times Jesus, is, Jesus prays in Mark, we see him surrendering his life to the will of the Father, most clearly in these last verses. We hear Jesus in the wild solitude praying, Father, not what I will, but what you will. Not what I want, not my own desires, but let them be shaped and oriented so that they are in line with your desires. And his prayers actually make possible any of our prayers. That we might learn to willfully pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Which is what he teaches us to pray. Which is what we prayed this morning, which is what we pray every Sunday morning in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Lord, may we surrender and allow our wants and desires and wills to be realigned with yours. Jesus's surrender in the garden frees us to surrender as well. And solitude provides the holy space necessary to hear the affirming voice of God say to us, we are his beloved. And it makes holy space for the invitation to surrender more fully to his goodwill in our lives. Henry Nouwen says this quote about solitude. We enter into solitude, first of all, to meet our Lord and to be with him and him alone. Our primary task in solitude, therefore, is not to pay undue attention to the many faces which assail us, but to keep the eyes of our mind and heart on him who is our divine Savior. Only in the context of grace can we face our sin. Only in the place of healing do we dare show our wounds. Only with a single-minded attention to Christ can we give up our clinging fears and face our own true nature. As we come to realize it is not we who live, but Christ who lives in us, that he is our true self, we can slowly let our compulsions melt away and begin to experience the freedom of the children of God. To close, let me just say, practically speaking, solitude will look different for all of us. Right? But it will always include this setting aside a time and place to be alone with God. If you don't do that, you will not have solitude in your life. Not true solitude with God. And this is a discipline. And like any effective discipline, it can't remain vague or general. You can't just say, I'm going to work out and expect to grow in your workout routine, right? Expect to see actual change in your body 
and in your health. It needs concrete parameters, just like the rest of life. So what will your parameters for solitude look like? How will you carve out holy space in your life? Maybe you'll set aside 20 minutes a day to be alone with God. Maybe that seems crazy. Maybe you'll set out 30 minutes a week. Maybe you want to set aside an hour a day, an hour every other day. Maybe you want more. Maybe you want to set aside a yearly retreat, a couple nights where you uh, get away to be alone with God. Maybe you want to do a quarterly retreat. I don't know. That's between you and the Lord to decide. I'm excited because after our liturgy today and after the congregational meeting, I'm going to go home. I'm going to have lunch with my wife and son, and then I'm heading out to do a 48-hour retreat uh, by myself. I get to spend extended time in prayer, in scripture, in journaling, in silence. I get to be with God and God alone. I'm genuinely really excited. So much so that I was willing to keep the dates even when I found out it was going to be like negative a million degrees. Uh, I didn't want to cancel it. I was able to get this time away and I'm going to do it. Um, but I want to say this, you know, if you, if you think, oh man, a retreat with God, that would be amazing. But I, don't, I have no idea where to start. I hardly know how to spend an hour alone with God. How am I going to spend 24, you know? Um, I am a resource available to you, okay? About a year ago, my wife was able to take a graduate-level course all about retreat. And thank God, some of her wisdom trickled down to me. So just reach out to me. I'd love to help you plan a retreat. I'd love to help you plan 20 minutes alone with God, uh, let alone longer than that. Please, if you have any desire, reach out. Solitude, again, is necessary for growth in Christ-likeness. Because in solitude, our identity as beloved children of God is strengthened and reaffirmed. And we discover again the joy and necessity of a surrendered life, willingly praying, thy will be done. Let's pray. <clears throat> o God of peace, who has taught us that in returning and rest we shall be saved, in quietness and trust shall be our strength. By the power of your Holy Spirit, quiet our hearts, we pray, that we be still and know that you are God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.